0: The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. This episode, I'm delighted to be joined by David Bland, a friend, collaborator, and author of the outstanding book Testing Business Ideas with Alex Osterwalder. I first discovered David due to his infamous product debt cycle, a classic anti-pattern innovators and entrepreneurs fall into when trying to build new products. What got me curious about David's cycle was closing the loop as to why customers didn't use your product. You see, David highlighted that blindly building what customers tell you they want isn't the way to succeed. In essence, we need to be testing our hunches based on what we hear formed as hypothesis to see what we need to succeed. So somewhat unsurprisingly, I was interested in his work from the beginning. And David's had many funny stories of people who've reached out to him with the next billion dollar idea. I
1: met a uh, Twitch streamer who reached out for me for help. Oh, nice. yeah. He uh, spent 25,000 on his setup yeah. and then realized he couldn't make any money. <laughs> yeah, he's but he has good mics now. Right? He has good mics, he has a green screen, yeah. he has a nice webcam, he has a nice gaming computer, but he's making like 2 dollars a month.
0: For me, David is one of the most humblest but exceptional experimenters I know. Together with Melissa Perry, He and I formed a book club to help one another as we wrote Escaping the Bill Trapped, Testing Business Ideas, and Unlearn, where we really got to see each other's thinking and testing in action. But before David got started with testing, he was still prototyping, or to be more accurate, painting, to figure out what he wanted to do when he actually grew up.
1: I went to school for design and communications technology. So it was a really interesting mix of like fine arts and then computer stuff. It's really interesting in the school, all my fine arts teachers looked down upon like, oh, you just press a button and it magically creates art on one side, you know? <clears throat> and then I go into the computer side and I'm like, oh, you're taking fine art. It was really interesting. The two groups don't get along at all. And yet here I am getting feedback from both in my degree. And then I decided to join a startup out of college. And I thought, hey, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to retire like my mid-20s. <laughs> Yeah, obviously that didn't pan out. Uh, quite yeah, the way, yeah, yeah. But it was the dot com era, so we all thought that. And basically, when I joined that startup, it was oh, well, yeah, you can make these images and everything, but now you have to code it and break it up for us. And I had to learn HTML and JavaScript and CSS and a little bit of XML and a bunch of other stuff. And before I knew it, I was kind of pulled down this path of learning how to code and Really running multi-million dollar implementations, which I had no really business doing at you know, early 20s, but I didn't know enough to be really intimidated by it. And so that startup, we were doing probably like a billion dollars a month in premiums over the internet before people even really were comfortable sending money over the internet. So it was a pretty crazy ride. and That's pretty really um,
0: interesting. How did you manage to get people starting to do that?
1: It was tough. Really interesting in financial services, we signed one of some like middle tier banks. They weren't huge, but they weren't really small. And I noticed as soon as we started integrating a few others really lined up because they thought it was some kind of competitive advantage. And so all these banks lined up in a row. But before that, when I joined that startup, we thought we were B2C. And so I'd spend all these late nights and weekends coding all these complex tools and workflows for consumers. And they would just turn around and go to their financial advisor and make a purchase. No matter what we did, no matter how many late nights I stayed up, didn't matter how beautiful the tools were, they just went to their financial advisor. And so luckily our founder, uh, Shane Trock was like, look, maybe we should just sell to financial advisors. And it was hard because we had to strip away a lot of these things we had built and everything, but that's when we took off. And so we ended up being a B2B startup. And we were acquired in 2006. And so I was there almost eight years. And that whole, I think, ride was very influential in my career and how I look at things because I learned pretty early on, it doesn't matter how beautiful something looks, where you think your customer is, if they don't want it, they don't want it. And so you either have to stick to your vision and kind of pivot to another segment and work through that, or you kind of just give up and walk away.
0: Yeah, there's such great sort of opportunities in some respects to sort of go through those learning experiences and come out the other side. But how did it feel when you sort of had to realize that actually the product that you were building was not what customers wanted? It it
1: was really hard. I mean, because I believed in the vision. You know, we were taking this paper process and making it automated. We're going to taking fraud rates down. We're taking not in good order rates down. Like it was going to be, I thought the vision was pretty solid. And it's just really hard when you're working on something and you're putting all this effort, energy, and I didn't have great work-life balance (laughs) at the time. So when you're putting all that attention into something and then the market rejects it over and over again, it's, it's just really humbling experience. It's actually really hard because you personally you attach yourself to the thing you're creating. And then when people get feedback on that, you take it personally. It's, it's really, really hard. But I think compared to some of the other startups I was at where we just persevered no matter what, those didn't end well. And so I think early on in my career, I just realized, okay, well, we're going to have to figure this out. We're going to have to basically be able to follow the data or at least be influenced by the data and not just blindly ignore it and persevere no matter what.
0: Yeah, I think there are really great lessons to learn straight out the gate in some respects, right? And, but also to have sponsorship and people in the organization that will listen and be sort of brave enough to make those decisions. What were some of the things that you think helped you make that pivot to a certain extent or recognize that you needed to sell to a whole different type of people and then start to strip back to just what were the things that they needed?
1: Yeah, I'd love to say we used the term pivot back then, but we didn't. (laughs) That wasn't a term in our lexicon. People laugh at like what the analytics were. You know, it's basically everyone measured hits and views and no one knew what was what or how many people were the same person. And to an extent, some of that still goes on today, but it was really bad back then. Looking back, I really appreciate kind of the founder's vision. And again, I wasn't a co-founder. I was just brought in really early. Having the humility to say, okay, this isn't working. You know, we raise this much money, we're going to burn through at our runways, X, we need to try this other thing before we give up. And that other thing actually being really successful. So it's so much as founder mentality being open to the idea of being wrong. And the other startups I was at, I was laughing, I was writing on Twitter, I was like, where were you 10 years ago? Because turn of the decade. And I was like, "Well, 10 years ago, I was pretty much, it was close to the point in time where I was carrying my stuff in a cardboard box out of the startup I was working at. Because I was like, we kept persevering no matter what. And compared that to my first startup experience, I literally was like, hey, can we just sketch out a canvas and just align what we're trying to do here? Because clearly we were working on things and adding them to this product that just had really low retention on it. And people got fired. I scheduled the canvas session and then the people are supposed to be in it, stopped responding to email and phone calls and they were just gone. And I was like, well, this is kind of not cool, and then I was like, go oh, as well with the, some other people, and I just feel like it's interesting. People compare startups to corporations, and we say, well, you know, corporations need to be more like startups, but there is some really dysfunctional startups out there oh, too. Absolutely, yeah. And so, if you have a founder that just wants to persevere no matter what, no matter what the data says, you are going to have a maybe even a worse experience because it's so condensed and it's not like. You can't really use the excuse of oh we're tens of thousands of employees like no you're like 10 or five employees and you're having this problem so um so much of it is like the mindset, of, mindset of the finder of the founder
0: yeah that resonates massively with me and i think that distinction between startups want to be like corporates and corporates want to be like startup i think that's a huge misnomer in our industry right They're they're all these entities and they have the way that they work and the culture that they create or the behaviors that are acceptable or Like mindset, you mentioned here as well. Like, you've one founder who's recognized that there's a finite amount of runway, and we want to go and test this other idea as as maybe a bet or a way to hedge what our future of our business might be, versus others who are just like, no, I'm stubborn uh, on exactly what it is. I'm just going to stick with it and, and not listen to or not recognize not only the signals from our customers, but signals internally that the company's not functioning well, that people aren't communicating, people are shutting down, people are not collaborating well, or nobody wants to take a step back and really get aligned on what success is. That problem I see, whether you're a startup, whether you're a multi-billion dollar organization with offices all over the world, like these are real human problems that we keep coming up against with again and again. And startups don't innovate faster than corporates. I think that's another misnomer in many ways.
1: Yeah, it really comes back to culture. <laughs> so if you don't have an open and collaborative founding team or leadership, they're all very secretive and they're always playing this back game. It's really, really tough. So the other thing I learned is that you can show people data, but you can't control how they respond to the data. So early on in my career, people were like, well, look, this isn't working. The data showing this, like, let's go a different direction. But later on, you'd show the data and people would just like, well... I don't trust that data, or those aren't our customers anyway. You know, there's all this like attacking the data, maybe attacking people personally. It's just really interesting. And people ask me when they go in their company and they go, hey, I want to work this way. And I give them advice to say, well, think about how people respond to the data, Uh, be mindful of it, be aware of it. Just because you show somebody data, that doesn't mean they're going to agree or even accept it.
0: Reminds me, I had Tanya Cordry on the show. She's the former chief digital officer for The Guardian. And she was sharing a great story about there, when she would show people data, journalists would sort of look at it and go, yeah, whatever. But when she was able to pair data with admission and say, you know, this is really important because why, as well as a a what was actually happening, it just sort of ignited people in that company, like setting them challenges like, well, you know, this democracy depends on us reaching people with real information about what's really happening in the world. And suddenly she'd got editors tearing sheets and typing. So I think that's a really great point about recognizing, especially with so much of your work based around designing great experiments to help people test their business ideas, that sure, the data is a component of it and describing what the success is and what's actually happening. But I think having the empathy and the why and the real mission about what are we trying to achieve beyond that, I think that's a really important part for people to understand the context of these things to get greater engagement.
1: Yeah, I think one of the maybe misnomers of the whole lean startup movement was, well, you don't need a vision. You just kind of pivot your way through things like, no, no, you still need a vision. (laughs) You still need a why behind it. You're just like testing that vision against reality. and being open to the fact that you might be wrong. And I feel like I still get that sometimes. It's kind of like Agile. Like Agile is just like, it's about going fast. It's like, well, maybe, <laughs> you know. And I think we distill these down in these little sound bites and they sound great, but it's doing kind of harm to people really understanding the why behind working this way. And so, yeah, have a vision, but you have to kind of test it against reality and be open to the idea that your vision might need to be shaped in some form,
0: you know, to, before you're successful. These are all great sort of little anecdotes of experiences you had working in these various different startups and companies as they were growing what have been some of the maybe personal unlearning moments for you in your career where have you suddenly had that sort of inflection point in your thinking or an experience
1: yeah i mean i've had many i think just the nature of my work is very much how to basically treat people with respect and help them understand how to experiment and be creative and But in it, it still goes wrong. (laughs) I mean, it's not experiment if it can't fail, right? Yeah. So basically, I mean, kind of going back to that third startup, I was carrying my stuff out of a cardboard box. I moved to the Bay Area after that and uh, started advising companies. that has been about the last roughly about 10 years. And I had a lot of different experiences in different kinds of companies because I don't really focus on a specific type of company. And so I remember in the travel industry once, I'd done something that went really well at one company, and then I was working with a different travel company. I was like, oh, this looks like what I experienced in the other company. I think this will work here too. And it went spectacularly wrong. And I was trying to reason through why that happened. And I keep coming back to culture and mindset. The tactics we use, like something you use to test an idea on a website. The tactics, yeah, you can line it all up. You could have your separate path to production and your feature flags and be able to toggle stuff on and on and measure. But then if the mindset of company's company is not that way, even the tactics kind of just start to fall apart. And so that was really eye-opening for me where I thought, oh, this is a no-brainer. This is going to work here too. And then I realized I didn't really take into consideration the culture, the mindset, the why, and the tactics didn't work. And they didn't work because there wasn't a culture of like testing your code and uh, testing your APIs and all kinds of other stuff. And partly on Me Too, I'm sure, because I'm not recognizing it. But it was one of those moments where I took a step back and said, okay, just because something worked at one company
0: doesn't mean it's going to work another company, even if they're in the same sector. This resonates massively with Me Too as well, right? I think one of the things I'm always nervous about is when you have success with certain tactics or practices or methods in one company, and you move from another company to another, as we both do in our consulting work, it's easy to fall into that trap, I think, as well, right? Where we're like thinking, well, it, it worked in the last place. Surely it's going to work here. And I think really understanding and recognising that challenge is, is a classic. On one of the exec camps, I remember we were out in this airport and we set ourselves up in this old abandoned business class lounge. And we turned it into a war room and it had all these people like designing different ideas to, and they would run outside of the lounge into the airport and start testing them. And I'd done a couple of the camps beforehand and people I loved this. They would loved this experience of sort of just quickly coming up with ideas and getting in front of customers and getting sometimes very raw and tough feedback and, and bringing it back and iterating again. And so I was like positive. Like everybody loves this, you know, and I still remember like doing that session with this particular group and it was just a car crash. People were upset because they felt like they were being personally attacked. They had never done any of these types of methods before. Their company was used to like very long rollouts, slow feedback cycles. Maybe they sat in a customer experience or feedback session maybe once a year. So there was a lot of these things that were often intuitive to me, were very alien to these folks. And naively, I just thought, well, everybody loves that. It was really difficult and uncomfortable and too uncontrolled experience for a lot of those folks to start with. And that was a huge sort of unlearning moment for me about, again, naively just thinking, oh, I can just take this tactic everywhere. But I think recognizing where people are at and meeting them where they're at and what's the next step for them to get a little bit better towards maybe some vision or direction that you have to help them get better is so important. Always falling into those traps, unfortunately, but hey, that's part of the deal.
1: Yeah, it's even in workshops and training sometimes, it's you know something that worked and you thought, oh, this is I've done this a bunch of times, this is going to work here and I just had one of these moments last month where I was like, wow, why is this not working? And I had a team that was like, you know, you asked us about all these assumptions and now you're asking us to craft a statement based on these assumptions. And we know their assumptions, so we don't kind of want to do it. <laughs> and I was like, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and yet I've never really experienced that before. And so I'm always learning, you know, every time because I'm very much a. Uh, teaching people how to do this and kind of moonwalking away. I can't really moonwalk, but I like to think of myself moonwalking away. And so I (laughs) so I want people to really get this stuff and learn it deeply and apply it, you know? And so I think I'm always looking for ways to improve how I teach and how I make it really actionable for folks. Because most of all my work is working on real product ideas that they're testing
0: out. Yep. Some of this thinking then, you're obviously feeding it forward to now you're working with these different organizations all over the world. You've created this great book, Testing Business Ideas, um, co-authored it with Alex Osterwalder. What are some of your observations about maybe organizations or some of the aspects that they need to unlearn about experimentation? I think you touched on one, which I think was really great, this cherry-picking ideas where people are like, from Methods, So Lean Startup, people going, great, if I just keep experimenting, I'll magically find an answer, which is not really the point. Pairing vision with ways to exercise that vision and see if it's true or not is where you want to get to. What are some of the other observations you've had or areas you feel organizations need to unlearn about how they go about testing business ideas?
1: I think a lot of it keeps coming back to leadership and leadership mindset. And it's really interesting. I used to do more organizational transformation work and I'd have this experience in organizations where we'd work with the teams and the teams would start to get it and then they'd look up at their manager and they're like, well, why are you still treating me like this but I'm not supposed to treat my team this way? It's very much like command and control, transactional directive type leadership style, right? Like go do this thing, go deliver that thing on that date. And if you start managing more to outcomes, right? Right. It's a different style of leadership. And so you're managing more outcomes. And then they go, huh, yeah, I probably shouldn't be treating you this way or still managing you the same way. And then they'll start changing. And then they'll look up at their senior director level or VP level and they go, hey, why are you treating me this way? <laughs> because I'm now acting a different way and leading a different way with my teams and my reports, but you're still treating me kind of in this other style. And then they'll have to reconcile it. And then they'll look up and go, okay, at a leadership level, do we change the way we work? And it's really interesting how, it, but that whole cycle of bumping up in an organization, going from like the teams to like middle management to senior, that could take two to three years. Oh, that's depending. I mean, that yeah. cycle is not a quick cycle. And, and so I keep coming back to leadership and I've had some amazing kind of influences in my career. When I first, I joined a small consultancy called big visible back in the day. And I was just with these amazing like leadership folks that understood they had like PhDs and, organizational design and all this stuff. And I was like a sponge. I tried to absorb as much as I could from them. And so I'm really grateful that experience. And I really learned that how people become leaders, it's very personal. And basically you're an expert in something. I think Bill Joyner and uh, Joseph write about this in Leadership Agility, but it's basically, it's very ego-driven. So people come to you first and you're an expert and you give them direction, they go do it and they solve their problem. But then eventually you become maybe managing teams, but you're still about this is how I would do it. This is what I think. And if you're not careful, you kind of maybe end up even at a CEO level that way. And it's still about you and what you know and what you think they should do. And at some point you have to understand that, especially if you're going to build a culture of experimentation, that you have to kind of create more leaders around you. And your leadership style has to change. It's like leading with questions versus answers. And how do I design an environment where teams can work this way? And it's really interesting. It keeps coming back to leadership because I think to keep at this over years and years and years and really apply experimentation and be open to the idea that you might fail, that really does come back to leadership. Are people going to be fired if they fail or not promoted if they fail? Are they going to be stack ranked against their team members? And if they fail, they're on the bottom and they get let go. I mean, there are all these things that kind of tie back into like the culture of your company and leadership. So I feel like we're hitting that time and time again where the teams are going to figure this out. But eventually, if this is going to sustain your company, leadership starts to have to understand that it doesn't mean you have to completely change your leadership style, but you at least have to be aware of your leadership style and then aware of, hey, if I'm just telling people to go experiment or what experiments to run or to build things anyway, because you didn't like what the experiments showed you, it's going to really stifle that ability to kind of build that muscle within your company.
0: Yeah, I see a huge amount of this, too, as well. I think you've touched on some real key points for people to think about. So many leaders are used to managing to output based measures of success. Did we build all the features? Did we stay within budget? Did we hit the time that it was due to be done by? Like, this is often how they're measuring success. And as you start to encourage teams to experiment, which means they need to start looking at outcomes like, Are we increasing customer retention by 20% in the next three months or not? Or are we moving in that direction or not? When you start to try and put those sort of metrics on dashboards for executives, they're alien to them, right? They're like, what is this? I don't know how to manage to outcomes. I only know how to manage to outputs in many ways, and there's an uncomfortableness about them. And when you're brand or your identity or your person is on the line for these projects that are fairly significant in companies. And then you're starting to introduce new ways of controlling those initiatives to understand are they moving in the direction you want. You get very adverse reactions, I find. And as you say, the teams get this, right? The teams are down, you're working with them on a daily basis. They're they're doing many reps to sort of get through and understand how they make that shift. I find often leadership teams don't really have that many reps or experience looking at different ways of measuring progress, especially when tackling on certain innovative type projects. You know, what jumps out to you in that sort of narrative and some of the things that you've seen and helped or examples you've helped uh, some of the teams sort of push through that?
1: Yeah, it's been a journey. It's, I'm still learning. It's, trying to raise awareness of why you should lead with questions. What are some of, I hate to say even best practices, but even guidelines you should use to help teams work this way. In the book, Alex and I call out, it's not just about the team, it's about behavior, but it's also the environment. And leaders should think about, well, if you don't have access to customers, it's going to be really difficult for them to experiment and test their ideas. Funding is another thing that comes up time and time again a lot of people are still running with this kind of annual budgeting, right? And we throw a bunch of money at a thing and a team that's usually too big and we see what happens. But a- and decide, it must succeed. Yeah. And you have to use the money or you don't get as much next time. There's some weird behavior there sometimes. I think the idea of internal VC funding is really fascinating to me. I've seen that happen in a couple companies and advised on it a little bit at different companies I've worked at. I think one of the behaviors that will happen though, so while it sounds good in theory, Again, come back to mindset, again, in leadership style, if you have folks that are business as usual, I'm going to measure ROI and outputs on everything, and you put them in a VC-like environment, and even in a big corporation, it can be challenging because when you're starting off, you have no idea what the ROI is. You're just trying to figure out, is there 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 at all? And the kind of questions you ask, the kind of metrics you measure... Are very different than a traditional business. And so I think it's almost unfair of us to expect people that maybe have been in a company for 15, 20, 30 years to automatically flip on like this VC mindset and be like, okay, I want to fund you for 50K for like 12 months or 12 weeks. And we're going to, we're going to measure this and this and this. I think like it's just so different from their day-to-day world. And so what I try to do in the book and others have, Eric Ries in Startup Ways, I know he was on your podcast as well. He tried to lay that out in there as well. There are some ways we can give guidance to people on how to do it, but I think it comes back to mindset. If you're asking the output focused questions, ROI focused questions on everything, it's just really hard to be innovative and test out new things because they get killed because you're using really the wrong metrics for them.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important. One of the companies I work with is ATP Code. They run all the data for the airline industry, right? So if you want to like book a flight between London and New York, they gather all the ancillaries for all the different airlines and different flight skews and super interesting business. Back in the day, when you used to have a book of flight, they used to send out these printed manuals that were like all the different flight routes and skews. Yeah, pretty funny, right? But again, like as they were starting to try to bring some of these concepts to life, a lot of it was just even trying to start with one team, right? Like, think about when you're making these changes to become more outcome-based, to start funding in smaller increments, one of the tactics we used was, let's just pick one or two teams that are going to start working in this way in their whole portfolio. They'd have a hundred odd different initiatives at any one time, but just picking two that are working in a different way that you could start to then safely experiment at your portfolio level with new ways of working and looking at different metrics, like what percentage of customers sign up for based on the prototype that we might show them or what people want to be part. What's the customer retention when we've built a new service or product? Would people still want to retain our data or would they level up to higher subscription rates? Like simple little things that are early indicators of customer behavior that show intent, Now that's a really different way of looking at success over a a smaller six to 12 week horizon than Here's the budget for the year you're going to build. What product did you say you were going to build? And what are all those features? And what date is it going to be ready by? Because we've got our customer conference on the 1st of January and you're going to promise everything's going to be ready for them. Oh, and you're going to experiment along the way. You know, I think this is sort of like this mixed mode messages where people are managing in a legacy output based way, but they want the experimentation because that's cool and hip. So make sure you're experimenting, but all my behavior is going to manage to the old world. And I think helping people even be aware of that is a great way for them to start pushing back or give them a language to start having that conversation, I think.
1: Yeah, I think if we view trust in organizations and trust between people, it's kind of this very shallow, almost transactional level, right? It's like, well, I asked you to deliver that thing, you deliver that thing, and therefore I trust you. But really, do you trust them? I mean, you basically measured them to an output and they showed you they could do it. Who knows how, right? Like what they did behind the scenes to make that happen. And then therefore, there's a level of trust there. And I think a much deeper level of trust is, well, we're trying to have an outcome. And then I'm going to give you the ability to find your way through that and give an account of how you're achieving that outcome versus just holding you accountable to delivering a thing. And I think if you go in a corporation, you ask, hey, you know, what's your take on accountability? It's almost always, I don't want to say negative light, but it's very much a command and control.
0: Oh, yeah, It's, it's like governance is a word that people get nervous about. You know, accountability means like someone's letting you down. And that shouldn't be the way.
1: Yeah. And so there's so many times I've been in an organization where they were like, we have to hold them accountable. And it's like, okay, well, they gave you a date and what they think they could do. And then you said, that's not good enough. And then you shortened it by half. <laughs> then you had to hold him accountable to hit that date. Like, I think when we talk about accountability, it's the idea of, is there an environment where they can experiment and report on how they're delivering outcomes or basically influencing outcomes? Can they give an account of it? I mean, can you put a structure in place where at least you can start to see how that could work? And I think so often, we're almost still in the industrial era, <laughs> I feel sometimes, where it's matrix organizations with projects split up across multiple functions and they're delivering on outputs. And I think we have to be really careful about pulling that model forward just because that's what worked back then. I mean, I think when you're working with things where you don't know the solution, it's really, really tough to model your whole work that way. So I'm not saying everybody has to be different as far as changing the way they work, but I think you at least have to start looking at some big questions with leadership, like what would happen if a startup was created today that would make us obsolete? Like, that's a great question to ask and see, are you even thinking about that? Or what would happen if you had to give your product away for free? What would you do? Could you still survive as a company? So there are really interesting questions that you can use as maybe starting points to start getting to see, okay, are we thinking about this? It's really different market now and economy and everything where it's not just a static business model that you can just run with for years and years and years anymore with a pretty static org. It's so many things change with technology and behavior and markets and trends, and you really have to have an organization that can adapt to that.
0: I think that they're all great points and really great questions as well. I think the whole project paradigm doesn't lend itself to stopping work. You know, it's specifically designed to encourage work to be created and executed and entirely delivered. There is no Room to stop, and I think that's a, another question. Maybe to throw in the mix is what would make us stop investing in this idea? Like, what would make us kill it? I think often people optimize for the happy path where there's their customer growth rates are 100% in every three months. And I think pairing it sometimes with what would make us kill this initiative and having metrics around that creates, I think, a good window to sort of what success might be, also what's telling us that maybe we should stop investing in these ideas.
1: Yeah, I think I've been a part of teams where we've killed ideas pretty quickly, or at least parked them, where the market wasn't ready. And we experimented for like six weeks and realized that platforms didn't support what we were trying to do. And the customers were, they're not who our customers thought. We thought we were more B2B. In this case, it was more a B2C thing, and it wasn't aligned to the company vision, and we parked it. I've also been a part of teams where we just needed more time. Like we went into a meeting with leadership and we said, look, here's our data. This is what we learned. But we think we need eight to 12 more weeks to generate some more. We think we might be onto something here, but it's not a home run yet, but we don't want to kill it either. And so I think that's valid too. I think we just have to be careful of the just going forward no matter what. You shouldn't have four or five just keep persevere sessions, (laughs) you know, where it's Oh, just 12 more months, 12 more weeks, we'll be fine. I think at some point you have to say, look, here's all the evidence, and this isn't really pointing to something. But also, some people latch onto that stuff because it's an idea that an executive really wants to see happen, or maybe they don't know where they're gonna what they're gonna do next if they don't work on that idea. And so it's really interesting dynamic where I've seen teams latch on to ideas and not give them up, even when the data is showing there's nothing there. But if you pull that thread, you start realizing. Well, they don't know what else they're going to work on. There's like no other ideas in the pipeline or they're worried they're going to get fired or it's some VP of products idea and they're afraid to kill it because they really want to see it built. And so I think when we see behavior, sometimes we have to step back and say, okay, what is it that's happening here? It's not just the surface level. There's something, there's something deeper. And I think We have the luxury of doing that from being the kind of outsiders coming in and observing, whereas when you're in there and you're part of the system, I think it's it's really interesting. The term is called being pickled or you're in there long enough and you become part of the system and you, maybe you don't see things like you would if you were outside the system looking at, it's really hard to stay neutral kind of third party in some instances.
0: I think that's a great takeaway for people, you know, is when they are trying to adopt the experiment approach. Yes, there's like lots of great tactics, as you said, you can try to experiment. But I think trying to find ways to also surface some of the cultural inhibitors with experimentations is a really good exercise I think people could do is like get together and not only recognize the type of experiments you want to run, but what are some of maybe some of the cultural aspects or behavior or mindset things that could also inhibit you from unleashing some of these tactics. I think that's a really awesome for people. Forty-four experiments in this book testing business ideas. I can't not ask you what is your theest example of an experiment that you run? What was one that you sort of look back at and go, "Wow, that was pretty funny"? Oh, there's so so
1: many. Wow. Uh, there there was a team back when I worked at Neo. There was a team out of New York that did an experiment. I, it was so hilarious. It was basically a SMS dating advice app and. But behind the scenes, it wasn't really an app at all. It was just a team of women answering texts from men who were curious where to take women on their first dates around, around New York City and other places. And I think that team, they wanted maybe a handful of signups the first day, but it went viral and they had thousands of signups <laughs> the first day. It was like viral in hacker news. And it was just really interesting because it was really, we could have spent months and months and months building some kind of complex bot that would offer up advice, but you really don't know, would guys feel insecure texting a number, asking for advice from a bot-like entity or whatever? And they're like, well, we could test it out by just doing it manually and you know, having the same tone that the bot would. And it's just such a fun experience, such a great story, that team. And then there's like Giff Constable and, and that group out of New York, and he could probably tell the story even better than I. But it's such a great story of you can use really creative manual processes to start understanding is there something here to a business or a product idea without building all the things. And that one, it was a really uh, difficult time to be able to find it, make it viable. It was feasible and it was desirable, but you know, would people pay for that? I think was the big question, but there are just so many interesting creative ways. In the book, I have kind of wizard of Oz and concierge experiments where you can do stuff manually and learn quite a bit and then turn that learning into action by or finding a strategy, or by automating something that works to scale it. There's so many stories about manually creating
0: things to learn that I really enjoy. I think that's a huge takeaway for people. You know, like I often think of software as just an automation of a manual process. Ultimately, that's all it is. It's just allowing things to be done repetitively by a bot. So I think this idea of really like descaling your ideas People always want to go to software first, but actually when you try to provide these services manually, it provides so much learning opportunity for the team and de-risks it, right? Because all you're investing is people trying to deliver the service manually and what would work, what would not work. One of the examples when working with British Airways is we were trying to test discounted pricing for groups, And to build software in airline industries, like 18 to 24 month lead time for software deployments, millions of dollars, it's just a tough place to do rapid experimentation in. But by descaling the solutions and like cutting it down to just one flight with one group of people reaching out to them specifically and asking, look, if you can show us that you're traveling as a group and you're maybe staying in the same location or going to the same event, we'll credit the 5% discount back on your flight. And doing that manually allowed us to learn a bunch of, first of all, did anyone care? You know, would anybody use it? And getting back to this, like, should we build it rather than can we build a question? And I think that's a really powerful notion for people to get into their minds is you can experiment manually by descaling things. And it's safer to fail in that environment because you're just investing your time, you know. And if you can really focus on that, you can learn a huge amount.
1: Yeah, I think one of the drawbacks of the, the viral experiment out of New York, right, was it went too big too quickly, which was not the point of the experiment is to keep it small. And so I do think you have to be careful when you're experimenting out the, with your customers in the market is if it does go viral, there's risk on the upside and the downside. I think so much we talk about, well, no one's going to care. You also have issues if everybody cares <laughs> or a lot of people care and you're not prepared to scale it. One of the great stories I have in the book is working with Dave Masters, realtor.com. And he had uh, toggled on something online, you know, in their process to test an idea. And he was just going to manually cobble the stuff together in the back end. And before he knew it, like there were all these requests coming in and it's like, oh, I have to turn this off right now because now I have all this work. And he was a really great sport about it. And he, he was really fascinating to work with. But sometimes we think we underestimate the demand of something too. And there's actually risk to that side as well. And so you do want to keep these like Mouser Concierge experiments kind of small because you just want to learn on a very specific kind of segment, right? Be very targeted. But there is a risk if it gets shared and goes viral, there's a lot of manual work to be done. This isn't like the vaporware thing of the 80s and 90s where we just dream up stuff and then we never deliver. It's, hey, you still have to deliver that stuff, you know? And that means more manual work. So we just have to be mindful of keeping it small. And sometimes that's tough if it gets posted on a site or in an era of social media, gets shared around, you have to have a plan to dampen it or shut it off <laughs> quickly.
0: Again, what I really enjoy what you're sharing here, though, is, you know, you're showing the rigor that's involved in experimentation. You can't just do what you want and see what happens. You need to have boundary conditions, like what are success, what's failure, when are we getting too much demand, when do we not enough demand. Like you're very intentional about like creating a blast radius in some respects about if we do this. What's the good consequences that can happen? What are some of the unintended consequences? What can we cope with? What can we not? And I think when you start asking those types of questions about designing experiments, you know it's bringing great critical thinking to the problem, rather than just sort of sitting there going, "Oh, I have an idea. Let's just do it and see what happens." And when they do take off, you can't respond, or you can actually cause more mayhem than you wish. I think one of the notions that you cover really well in the book is giving people a very broad set of characteristics about what this experiment will help with. What are some of the trade-offs that really give people a more holistic picture rather than just the soundbite of, oh, I'm just experimenting now. We're an experimenting company. And I think that's a really important takeaway for me from both reading it and this type of work.
1: Yeah, we certainly try to make it actionable for folks and give them some guideline. It's really hard to be specific in a book like this for every industry, but giving you some general, here's some things to look at, here's strength of evidence, here's how much it could cost you, how much time. But then they have to get specific in their context. And I think it plays a good balance of, okay, here's what's available to me, Maybe it's some things I hadn't thought of before, and then can I make them specific to my instance, right? And they change, right? It's if you're dealing with patient data, there's certain things you could do. Financial data, certain things you could do. If you're building an app to make accessories for your cats, maybe not so many regulations <laughs> depends on the cat industry, I guess. So yeah, it all depends based on your context. But I think what we tried to do was just give people a way to choose and that was the big thing for me. And a lot of this stuff isn't new in the book, but it's got a taxonomy on it. And then pulling from folks like Steve Blank and, and others in the past, where it just we're just trying to extend the ideas and make them really actionable
0: for folks. Awesome. I think you've done a great job. And it all ties back even to this idea that there's lots of tactics in here, but as you're describing, you got to contextualize them. One of your key learning moments from the top of the show, which I always think is nice to round back to. So as you look ahead then what are some of the exciting things you're thinking about now and what's piquing your curiosity yeah it's
1: been crazy so the book's been out uh not quite two months yet so i'm still relishing in that right now and doing book talks my book tour when i'm doing a tour uh, i guess you can call it tour i talk about how we wrote the book and people are very appreciative of that and i have a lot of people come up to me afterwards and say you know i was stuck on writing a book but the way you've explained it gives me a way forward so that's been kind of an unintended maybe or unforeseen kind of benefit of giving talks on the book. I feel like there's a hole in the market and we fill this need with a kind of a library and a textbook kind of book. And then it's hey, what's online available to you. We're working on that stuff. I'm still a big believer in funding startups based on evidence. It's a harder problem to solve. I would think it would be easier, but I should have learned from other folks when they tried it and failed. So that's still something in the back of my head I'm playing with. I feel like this is a nice jumping off point now. There's, there's some content here to work with. But that's still, I'd say, long-term vision. I'm still really passionate about startups and having them be funded in a way where it's not just a dream and a customer-free zone and a PowerPoint presentation and just emotionally funding them. I feel like there's a way to balance that out with the evidence that I'm looking to influence a little more.
0: Well, I'm excited to see whatever product or service or some of the experiments you run along the way to get there. Yeah, there's a book I can use to help test some of those, I think, yeah. been a pleasure to have you on the show, David. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me.